This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. Hi, I'm Jeff Gibbard, the world's most handsome social media and content marketing strategist and real-life superhero. And this is my podcast, Shareable. Every week, I get the opportunity to speak with someone brilliant, including entrepreneurs, academics, authors, speakers, researchers, and more. Come along with me as we dig deeply into their unique story of success, including their highest of highs and often their lowest of lows. These episodes are powered by my curiosity about the critical role that relationships and technology play in shaping the course of our lives. These episodes aren't sales pitches. These episodes aren't the standard book tour. These episodes are just shareable. Before we get to the episode, I just wanted to let you know about an amazing free resource that you should be taking advantage of. I ran my own agency for seven years, and I know that as a freelancer, entrepreneur, or small business, you want to feel confident that you have all of the skills you need to grow your business, lead your team, and close the sale. But I also know that sometimes, no matter how hard you try, it seems like you can't get ahead. You try to learn how to be a better leader only to find yourself winging it. You know that you have a unique story to tell, but your marketing materials aren't telling it. And the things you need to learn are spread out all over the place, so it can be challenging to know where to even start. And it's for all of these reasons that I created the Superhero Institute. The Superhero Institute is a personal and professional development platform with curated resources, lessons, and strategies to unlock unlimited growth potential and teach you specific superhuman abilities. Your free membership comes with access to the one-of-a-kind superhuman framework, along with a structured approach designed to give freelancers and small businesses the tools for professional growth. Lead your team, tell your story, and close that business. Commit yourself to continual growing, to consistently expanding your skills, and constantly deepening your understanding. It's time that you get more done than you ever have before, and before long, you'll realize that you're just getting started. Become the superhero you were meant to be. Join today for free at superheroinstitute.org. And welcome back to Shareable. Today, my guest is Hope Wallace Timberlake. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. I'm so excited to be here, Jeff. Cool. Uh, you and I are absolutely kindred spirits. It's like, it's obscene, I think, how much you and I have in common. Uh, our professional interests are like, they're basically like laying directly on top of one another. So I feel like there's just so much to talk about today. Uh, so I, I just want to like get into as much stuff as we possibly can. Let's start off with tell everyone like who you are, what you do, what your whole thing is, a little bit of your background, anything that kind of helps to contextualize the the kind of just extemporaneous dialogue or, you know, conversation that we're going to have about all the things that we're into. Great. Well, Jeff, I'm Hope Timberlake, and I help women unfurl their superpower capes, superhero capes. Be unfurled. Let's, uh, let's get these uh, women in leadership positions, communicating more effectively. These are the things I am passionate about. Awesome. I am super into it. Your entire website and web presence and everything like fully freaking speaks to me. Let's go into some of the ways in which you do that. So yeah. uh, you are now with Forte Consulting. Yes. Is that your company or so that's yours? And before that, it was Timberlake Communications, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yes. 
So has this been a constant kind of through line or did you make any sort of pivots in what you do? Or have you always been kind of like moving towards this like total utility belt of amazing superhuman abilities that you're teaching people? Yeah, it's, it's been a, it's, it's been a road. And uh, as I think your wife likes to say, there's been some pivoting and shimmying along the way, but it's, it's, uh, it's been fun. I, I've always been passionate about persuasive communications, helping leaders be more effective. And this, this dates back to being a child. I have, my dad is my superhero and my, my role model. And he is just so incredibly good at speaking to people, meeting them where they are, being really clear and persuasive. And that's just a role model that I've had, you know, entire, my entire life, of course. And uh, since then, in every role I've had, it's been focused on how effective are the leaders? How much are they able to motivate and inspire? And what can I do to create more of that in this world? That is outstanding. And, and you and I share that as well. My dad is my superhero. And so much of the way that I look at leadership and effective communications, um, it, it stems just from how he was with me. Maybe not how he was with everybody else. He's a little bit of like an introvert and generally doesn't like other or a lot of other people, but he's very, he's very good with them. But like we share that. So um, talk to me a little bit about in terms of your work experience, if that was your role model and you had that, and that kind of helps solidify seeing how you could be persuasive with people, how you could be effective meeting where they are. I can't imagine that all of the bosses that you had in your early career could live up to such a thing. Can you talk to me a little bit about kind of the contrasting experiences you may have had throughout that kind of led you here? Yeah, it's so interesting. It's, uh, it's very funny how, you know, you start out idealistic in your career. And I was working in Washington, D.C. as a summer, summer intern during my college years and was going to work with changing healthcare and access to all kinds of healthcare for women. And my manager sucked so bad. She was never in the office, was like, okay, work on this project, zero check-in, zero communication. At a certain point, I just thought, okay, I guess I'm on my own. I would do it. And she's like, wrong, wrong, wrong. So there's this whole level of what not to do as a manager and a leader. And then that is contrasted with my first real job out of college where I worked for this very inspirational woman who had a, a um, she's a doctor, she's, she has her MD, she's a surgeon, and she has her MBA from Stanford. And she would just tell stories. So against the grain of an MBA and surgeon, she would be so inspirational with stories. She was so uh, just inspiring and empowering of her team that that was one of these great pivotal early models of this is what I want to look for in leaders who would lead me. And this is what I want to cultivate in others. So I've been lucky in that, aside from that one bad internship experience, I've had pretty great leaders and have also been owning my own business and being my own leader for the last 12, 14 years. So that's been very helpful too. Outstanding. So I align with everything that you're saying so far. Everything's making perfect sense to me. Talk to me a little bit about, um, Talk to me about your big vision. Like what, what is the thing that you're out to really accomplish with all this? So like, I know why I'm in the whole superhero business and leadership training and helping people discover their brands and, you know, all the things that we overlap in pitch communications, influence, persuasion, all that stuff. What's your kind of, what are you trying to change in the world? Yes. Okay. My BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal. It is to get more women leaders in the C-suite and specifically in uh, the CEO role. And the, the data is, is pretty amazing in that 
about 50-55% of professional managers are women. So there are more women in, in, enrolled in colleges, there are more women even enrolled in MBA programs, I believe. I'd have to double check that stat. But what I do know is it's 55% of professional managers are women. Yet when you get up to the C-suite, or even just top leadership, don't even talk about the C-suite, but you know, the, however you define top leadership, it's only about 25% are women, and only 6% of CEOs are women. And okay, it's not, this is not just trying to have a, a um, we're not trying to just meet quotas here, but there's actually so much compelling research about the business outcomes, about profitability, customer satisfaction, creativity, patents, and there's a whole range of benefits when we see a more diverse working environment or more diverse leadership team. Uh, so all kinds of great reasons for getting women to speak up, own their leadership, actually be visible, aim to be more credible, and move up that ladder to create better working environments. I have always found in my career that um, like it's not even comparable in terms of my relation to it, but I find women so much easier to work with personally. Maybe it's because I had a good relationship with my mother. I don't know what it is, but like I've just always found it a lot easier. And to me, that's not to say that I think it's better. It's to say that that works for me. And I think how I take what you're talking about, and I, and I think there's a danger that some people would take what you're saying and be like, oh, women are better. There should be women in those positions. It shouldn't be men, yada, yada. But the way I take what you're saying is there's got to be something for everyone, right? There's no right work environment. And providing a diversity of options creates the opportunity for people to find the work environment that's right for them. And there's certain things that women can bring to the table in the way that they see the world, in the way that they lead, that oftentimes men can't based upon how you know, both sides of the, the coin are, are coming to the picture. I completely agree. And yeah, like this is not about, yes, women are better or we need to meet the quotas or in fact, I'm, I'm pretty conflicted and not that thrilled with a recent requirement that the boards, uh, the you know, company boards have to contain an equal number of male as female seats in California companies. I don't want to see it being mandated or legislated. It's more that, yes, Jeff, if you love working in this environment where you have an inspirational or supportive leader, who happens to be female, awesome. That's the right company fit for you. And if somebody else is like, no, you know, I really see a drill sergeant and it, it tends to be in the, in the shape of a male and that's the kind of environment where I'm mostly motivated, then great. But offering a, a wide range of options and seeing what we can do with different perspectives and different leadership styles is my goal. So then let me ask you this. You, you've brought up kind of like quotas a couple times there. and I think that's a lot of times what people will hear when we talk about getting more people of color in the workforce or getting more women in or being more LGBTQ friendly, all that sort of stuff. They think, oh, well, you're just setting quotas arbitrarily. What if they're not the best person for the job? Yada, 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 all that sort of thing. And at the same time, you're doing this work where you're trying to help uh, women to move into these leadership roles. Would you say that there's, uh, like, I, I guess on it's not going to be one or the other, but on balance, would you say that there's a bigger issue where women may not feel that they have the opportunity to move up, like the, there's not being space created for them, or is it that they don't know how to go and take charge and get up into there? Like, where do you see the real kind of, um, if you had to focus on a, a key area as a starting point, what do you think is that kind of Achilles heel that we're facing right now to see a more gender diverse, um, you know, people in the leader at the upper leadership levels? Okay, I love this question. So yeah, there's systemic things that are happening in our organizations that make it harder perhaps 
you know, people can argue policy sides of child care and work-life balance and all those things. That's not my focus, although I think that's a valid focus. My focus is really what can we do to empower more women to speak up, to have the confidence, the credibility, the courage to be more prone, open, interested in taking on a leadership role. So that's one part of the solution, and I will work, have other people work on the other parts about changing the environment in which people can succeed, you know, can go up the career ladder. So is also part of it then that when, so you're working with women and working to give them the skills and the confidence and all the things that they need to be able to ascend into a leadership position. Do you feel that there's then a responsibility on behalf of the women who take those steps to create more of a welcoming environment and a more open sort like, so to, if there's systemic issues, is it then the kind of the goal that by working with them and getting them into these roles to sort of change the culture from the inside by way of sort of getting them into those roles and showcasing like why this is such an important thing and then creating an environment where it kind of opens up the field a bit? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question and a really interesting reality is that we see and, and I think there's evidence behind this and certainly anecdotal evidence around sometimes women can be the hardest on other women. Now, uh, you know, I, I'm not necessarily looking to coach them to say you have to change, but I do think that when we start looking at the, the business benefits and the business outcomes and what can happen to the team, to the company, to profits, it makes sense to mentor, to align. And I sort of suspect that those who are push, those women leaders who are pushing others down or, or not creating space that's a piece that they need to really own that this is not a scarcity model that we can have plenty of women leaders in place and it doesn't threaten their leadership so i'd like to think that that is the outlier and not the norm but certainly the the people i coach and to be fair i actually coach and work with as many men if not more men than women but my passion is around really working with especially that emerging leader subset of women who are in their career, they're really, uh, they're, they're excited to accomplish something, they really want to move up the ladder, but they're not quite there. That subset of clients I work with is the one I'm most passionate about. And yes, if I can work with them to encourage them to mentor others, fabulous. But I think that they're, the, 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 just sort of the innate interests that they have are those that will naturally want to mentor and help pave the path for others behind them. Got it. So you work with a lot of men. That's really interesting to me because like I said, I work in my, in my entire career, I've uh, probably worked with more women than men, at least mm. closely on my teams. And I have mentored and kind of been the, uh, had on my team uh, much more women. And I will say that one of the things that I have, I don't want to say I struggled with it, but it's one of the things that has always come up for me is that um, as a white male, I have a particular way that I have operated in this world. Um, and there's not very many barriers to me because of the fact that I'm a white male. Um, there are barriers for other reasons, but because of that particular fact, right? So when I give advice and I give coaching to the people that are working for me who are women, uh, and in some cases, women of color, I'm talking about it from the perspective of someone who has taken a particular approach and that approach has worked for me when that approach can actually backfire on people who don't look like me. 
And mm-hmm. I've found that that's been somewhat challenging because I'm very much like a bull in the China shop. I like run in, I'm like, I'm going to basically, I'm going to tell you what my opinion is. I just do what I do. I mean, I'm, I try to be very um, empathetic to, to the people in the room and I try to be a good listener and all those sorts of things. But uh, I definitely am a take charge attitude. And I know that that sometimes is met with resistance. What are some of the things that you have found? It could be that, it could be that, and plus a bazillion other things. But what are some of the things that in working with men that you tend to work on or that you find are sort of common challenges that they face? Yeah, good question. So there are a lot, I really focus on the communication side of leadership. We know there's goal setting, there's so many, there's so many aspects of leadership, but the communication side and really thinking about the impact on others. So a perfect example is a leader I've been working with in Silicon Valley, FinTech, COO. Great guy, worked with him for years now. And one of the most pivotal things that happened was he was not, he was, he was, he's a really nice guy and he was afraid to fire people. He's a COO. He's got a big job. They're, they're a rapidly growing company, but they need to get rid of people at times. And he had such a hard time doing it. So he took a step back and talked about what is the impact on all of those around you? What is the impact uh, of the people on that person's team, on people on your team by keeping them around? And it was literally just shifting his mindset from him thinking, this is really hard. I don't want to make someone, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to fire someone. I don't want to cause them any family stress. What's going to happen to them? You know, the wife's pregnant or whatever the case may be to actually looking at the impact on those around him. And it's such a small but important shift to make is seeing things from the other people's perspectives. So what I love is that you can just reframe things so easily because we've been doing this for so long, we see it. And others are like, wow, that changed everything. And truly, it's not like I'm proud that he started firing people left and right, but he started really helping the the culture of the company by showing if you can't perform for any given reason, then we need to part ways and we need to really work with those people and reward those people who are here for the, the right reasons or are able to contribute in a way that, that contributes to the culture. So just really shifting that mindset from me focused to others focused. I'm not implying that males are all me focused. I think this is something that I would do with a lot of, of clients, male or female, is just really getting out of your own head and looking at how does this impact the rest of the team? How does this impact the culture? How does this impact all of those people in the business and not just impact me? Yeah, there is so much there to unpack. I mean, the the not wanting to fire someone, that's just, you don't want conflict. You don't want people to feel bad. It could be that you're overly empathetic in that situation. And by shifting that frame, you're getting them to see things from the other point of view of all of those other people. So I, I am a huge proponent of if you shift the way people think, that's going to be one of the most impactful things you can do as opposed to just showing them something else to do or giving them a script to follow. So I'm 100% in, in, uh, in on that. Um, it's interesting also because you brought up sort of uh, rewarding the people that are there and not necessarily like focusing on punishing the people that you leave or whatever, but like rewarding the people that you're there. Uh, in the Netflix culture deck, uh, mm-hmm. if I don't know if you've seen that, but it's such a, mm-hmm. such a good culture deck, but they talk about how essentially what a company values is shown in the behaviors that they reward, right? So, uh, you know, keeping people around is essentially rewarding the wrong type of behavior. And one thing that I've, you know, I've struggled with this also, like firing people to me is like such a gut punch every time I've ever had to be a part of it. 
Um, it is just absolutely devastating. But the thing that I've tried to do with it that um, I find is helpful, I know we're like going off on the tangent of like how to fire people here, but um, the, the thing that I found really helpful is like, how can I do this act causing the least amount of harm possible? So can I introduce who this, this person that I have to let go from my team because they don't fit for one reason or another, they're not performing or they don't get along with the other people on the team, whatever it is, how, how can I make sure that their transition out of my company is the smoothest and kindest, least harmful way possible? Can I introduce them to other people? Uh, can I write them a recommendation or a LinkedIn recommendation or a referral of some sort? Can I do something for them? And there's obviously not like somebody who's done something unethical or terrible, but like, right. how can you make this transition the, the kindest you can possibly do it, you know? Exactly. I think that's it is that, that goodwill and that, that bias towards action of, okay, yes, this sucks. This is an unfortunate situation. And here are some things that we can talk about to make it better. And I think it's analogous to, to coaching people or giving difficult feedback, uh, starting, initiating difficult conversations. There's a lot of that, that we get in our own heads. And for me and for my clients, it's really hard to have those conversations or to give that feedback. But when you can look at it around, okay, here it is. This is the, the bitter pill. And let's look at these other resources for how you can develop the skills to improve or how you can work better with the other departments or whatever it is that the feedback or the difficult conversation is about. But being proactive around solutions uh, in addition to being really clear about what the problem is. I think this is such a good endorsement for the need for coaches for a very long time in my career, I, I wouldn't say I was anti-coach, but I'm an only child and I'm like, I always feel like I can take it all and do it all myself and like, I'll teach myself. Like, so very much making the, the, the mistake of thinking that if I didn't know everything, I could figure out everything, right? And I think the, um, the experience I've had as someone who coaches others is the realization that when I coach someone through a difficult conversation, like how to have a review, or how to give negative feedback to someone. That to me is like, it's actually a joy for me to do it. It's actually really easy to help someone else do it. But when right. I'm emotionally involved in it and I'm on the inside of that conversation and I have to have that difficult conversation, there's a different thing that's going on in my head that I'm not, I can't step away from it and say like, okay, well, strategically, how would I handle this in a way that's empathetic and that achieves the goals for both parties in this? I can't because I'm just too in it. So I think it really speaks to the value of uh, leadership coaching, um, you know, just in general, executive coaching, things like that. Super important because getting out of your own head, even if you know the right answer, like the quote unquote right answer, but like the right way to deal with one of these situations, when you're in it, it can be so much more difficult. It's exactly right. And such a good reminder too, for those people who are coaching, training, working in these leadership and executive communications roles that it's so much easier when we don't have that emotional attachment to it. Yeah. Uh, and really keeping that forefront so that you don't forget that this is really emotional or can be really emotional and really difficult, not just because they don't know what to say, but just all the feelings that arise around it. Yeah. I'm curious about your approach because I, again, like when I look at your kind of like list O interests, I'm like, it's my entire curriculum basically with my client right. as well. So we share a lot of that. The thing that I often struggle with is sort of sequencing, right? So like, I know that persuasion is very important. I know that being able to have difficult conversations is very important. I know that goal setting and inspiring people is very important. I know that, that, that all the different things, right? Mm -hmm. What's the, 
how do you structure it in such a way in that the first thing you're teaching someone is foundational to build the next thing on top of it, to build the next thing on top of it. And oftentimes I find like, oh, I can't, I feel like I can't have this conversation with someone because there's this kind of like a prerequisite that I feel like we need to do first. And then it kind of gets into this thing where it's like, okay, well now we need to work together for six months just so I can get you in the right mindset. So you understand what I'm about to tell you in six months. You know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. I love this question because I, I, I absolutely love it. And like you, I love frameworks. So I love having a process yeah. and a plan. I get excited about that. And it doesn't always work. So I do, I do have a process and a plan and a framework. And like you said, sometimes you're there in the heat of some situation where, especially I find the startup world, I have had many, many startup clients over the years and you work with them and they are in more or less a version of crisis mode where they're just trying to put out so many fires that the approach of going through something in a systematic way just feels too long, feels too arduous. They want an immediate answer. So there's that whole managing expectations piece of it. But in, an, in a perfect world, when you're not being called in to fight whatever fire or help to, to help them to fight the fire, uh, what I really like to do is just look at it from, again, a simple but profound way, which is thinking about leading myself, leading others, leading the business. And so the leading myself piece just looks at what is your mindset like you talked about. Yes, we could probably spend six months on that, but ideally we don't. We, we at least like scratch the surface with it around what's your leadership mindset, what are your successes, what are your strengths, what are your weak points, and also a lot, just a lot around understanding your communication style, what works for others, what can be a liability for others, and how all of the different complex traits of your personality and your styles and your behaviors can interact with others around you. So that whole piece of, okay, who am I and how, who am I in relationship to those around me? So if I'm really, really biased towards action and efficiency, efficiency, and those around me are really, really detail-oriented and process-oriented, there's going to be or could be some version of conflict. Like, I just want to keep moving on. I'm okay with failing and, and recovering and moving fast. And others have more of a risk aversion. And I see this all the time around just these ahas where people are like, oh, once I realized what my biases are towards what I value, how I communicate, how I like to work, it explains so much about how, the, how these clients work well with others and how, they, how conflicts arise. So really spending a good amount of time, and good amount of time is, of course, subjective. It depends yeah. on the client and what they're looking for. But starting there around really thinking about what is it that makes them tick and how does that work in their work environment? I think that's got to be actually one of the things that I find most challenging personally in my work is the communication styles piece of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as, as an only child blaring extrovert, like for me to command the attention of a room is like a skill I've developed over 39 years at this point. Okay. And uh, trying to teach others who may have grown up more introverted, maybe they had like three or four brothers uh, mm -hmm. and like they were the youngest and like they never felt like they were heard, whatever it could be like, everybody kind of develops their personality out of a variety of, you know, uh, nature and nurture, right? And sometimes a lot of the things that I find that I'm trying to coach people on or trying to give them a framework for, it really would almost require going back and for lack of a better term, like rebuilding their personality in some ways so yeah. that they can 
you know, like for instance, that to, to be an active listener, right? Like to a certain extent that relies on your, your facial features and your ability to like maintain eye contact and all of these nonverbal cues. If somebody is naturally introverted or shy, they may have a more difficult time with that. And despite the best coaching about what to say and how to think about things, they may convey something that is counter to what they're trying to, to actually get across. So I struggle with that a lot. I guess this is a long-winded way of asking the question of, do you believe and have you seen in your work that basically anybody can learn these skills of influence and persuasion, uh, effective uh, conflict resolution, all all the sort of, uh, yeah, all those sorts of things? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a big question. And we both know behavior change is really challenging. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of desire. And it's, it's not something that can be done overnight. What I do see is that when you look at, when you, when you give people the space to identify what do they value, what's important to them, I have some frameworks around identifying their communication styles and their, their, their motivators and values and needs. And then we also can play around with some video recording, which is so powerful because people will tell you one thing and do something completely different. So when I'm working with someone who's willing to and able to take a Zoom call and record that and send me a clip or, you know, I'm not usually in the meetings. In fact, I don't think I'm rarely in the meetings, but if I can get a version of it later, it is incredible for me to see, but for me to watch them watch themselves see, okay, wait a minute. I thought that I was really flexing to the room and being more patient and listening. And clearly when I look at the video, I'm asking the question and then looking down and getting ready to ask the next question. So just watching people realize what their behaviors are is powerful. And that to me is one of the most powerful ways of getting them to want to shift and actually work on and be successful at shifting some of those behaviors. So that brings up for me the question of how do you deal with shame? Right. So this, like when you're correcting people's behaviors in this way, we're like, you've got leaders, they're trying to make a massive change. They're trying to deal with people. They already probably deal with being like, I'm the person at the top. Am I actually qualified for this fraud syndrome sort of thing? Right. And now you're coming in and you're like video recording them and showing them basically every way that they possibly screwed up. And I'm sure that you're very you know, delicate with the way that you handle that. But there's a lot of emotion that comes along with wondering if you're qualified for the role that you have as a leader. And especially you, you work with a lot of women who have additional challenges for that about worrying about how they're going to be perceived and all these other kind of constraints that, that get imposed upon them. How do you deal with and, and how do you factor it into the way that either in the course of the way that you coach them or after the fact, once they experience, how do you deal with those kind of negative emotions that arise with those, those types of clients? Yeah, oh, such a big question. I know. So it's really big. I'm that I want to know these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's rich. Uh, so interestingly, earlier on in my career, I dealt with this more, and some of that was, some of that was I would take more clients who did not necessarily want to be clients, but who were assigned to me or who were their boss said you need coaching, that type of thing. I am lucky enough and pickier enough now that I don't take on a client unless they're really, truly game. And it doesn't mean that the others don't need work, but it's, you know, can you imagine if all of a sudden you're, you were telling, well, your wife is, is, is pregnant, so you're not going to tell her right now to do this, but you're, you're telling your spouse, hey, 
go run a marathon and I'm hiring a coach to help you come every morning at 6 a.m. to go run this marathon. This is the Peloton the, commercial. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's the Peloton commercial. Exactly. So nobody's going to do that. So that piece is just fraught with emotion and difficult, um, difficult, very difficult to change behaviors in that. So luckily I'm not doing that so much anymore at all. But those other people, a couple things. I mean, for sure, I spend time, I a lot of time to build some rapport. And it doesn't, you know, I think I'm pretty disarming. So I can, I can, I love people. I love connecting with people. And I think that they feel that. And so I build trust quickly. Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm a softie. I mean, I will definitely, especially if somebody really wants to work on something, I'm going to tell them and I'm going to work with them. I'm going to come through stern and, and clear when I need to. But in the beginning, I'm going to build some rapport. And then I think the thing that's almost magic is getting them to identify, give them their own assessment. So, but that's what I think I love about the video opportunities is, okay, great. So Jeff, we're watching this video. We'll, we'll watch it together. What did you think worked really well there? And let's come, let's, let's inventory all the things that worked really well. And if, if, they are, if there's a lot of shame or there's the you know, self-doubt, any of the uh, imposter syndrome things, they might not name that many things. So I keep probing, trying to get more things out because everyone does some things well in any interaction. Every interaction I've ever had, there's been something that we can identify. So we try and tease that out and really work on that. And then I have them identify what they didn't do well. And yes, that can be, of course, a, a source of shame, but it's not me imposing it on them. And then I wind up agreeing or disagreeing or helping weigh what is just their low self-esteem and they're just piling on versus what's truly something to work on. Uh, I have had tears. I've had tears from men, women. Um, in fact, well, I was going to say almost as many, but probably more women than men, but still definitely, definitely have had those interactions where it's not even so much around tears around my bosses being mean to me, but more around, I failed in this, or I'm not good at this, or I'll never, so that the fixed mindset, I'll never change. So that's something that we've had to work with. But for the most part, that you know, people are their biggest critics, and I can help gauge what's really something to worry about, and what can you let go. And let's say they have like six things they really need to focus on, let's prioritize, let's work on the top two for now. The rest can be put on hold, but let's just work on these two. And that just feels like a better plan. They feel better. Um, so there is shame, but it's, it's, uh, it's doable. Yeah. I love this, the use of the Socratic method. In a lot of my coaching, I, will, I find that a lot of managers and leaders have a tendency to want to tell people what they did wrong or, or how to fix things. And typically what I'll recommend is, is just starting to introduce more questioning in that because what I've found is that when somebody kind of points it out themselves, they take a little bit more ownership over it because it's not you pointing out something, it's them noticing something. And then when you can create the space after them noticing that to not make them wrong for doing it and to give them the opportunity to say, hey, this happens. Like people make mistakes, whatever it is, let's talk about how we're going to fix it because we're, we're, we have the same goal of it getting better. So let's work on that, right? So it creates this amazing opportunity where you can transform that shame into ownership and then you can take that ownership and turn it into alignment and collaboration and then all of a sudden you've taken this thing where like it just was completely broken before and you've turned it into something that's now hopefully working i completely agree exactly right yeah 
So I love, um, you said something a little bit earlier I want to circle back to. So you work with a lot of startups and you mentioned Mm -hmm. how they move very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So I work with agencies. I I actually just Mm -hmm. uh, officially launched a new program that I'm doing that's exclusively for agencies. And it's very, very similar to a deep consulting program that I do for companies where we work together for like six months. We go into like the brand, the business, the marketing, the sales, the culture, the leadership, all these different things because they're all connected. We go into all these different pieces, but that's spread out over a much deeper timeline and, and it's every week. Whereas for the agency, we condense that whole thing because agencies are basically dumpster fires at high speed. Yes. Um, so I've, I've been in a very similar situation where I know that kind of that pull to like, we have to get it done. We have to move it faster. And what I've seen in that is that it, it causes you to kind of to your point, like you can have a framework, but it's almost like you have to be willing to let a third of that framework just kind of like wait till later or like we'll come and fix it later. Like let's build this car while it's on the road. Um, So I'm curious about some of the strategies that you've employed when working with leaders in these fast paced companies, kind of what do you tend, I know it's going to be different for every client. Every client is, it depends, right? But in terms of how you, I guess how you alter your approach when things are moving at that speed, like how do you modulate yourself so that you can serve that client and get them where they want to go while still stressing the importance of like some of these things actually are going to require you to follow this process and slow down? Yeah, it's really tricky. It's a, it's a good question because it really is about meeting them where they are. I can tell them over and over again, if you're not going to follow this process, you're not going to create any behavioral change or cultural change in your organization they either don't believe me or they don't care or, or, or they care, but it's lower on the list of priorities. And so often we have these brilliant plans and, and someone in the organization, an internal sponsor will agree to it and be so excited. And by the time you go to launch this program, they've already moved on. They're like, okay, well, can we just now revise it and change it and shift it? And it's happened so many times. It, there's a couple of things. I feel like we need to strike while the iron is hot. So they're ready to go. We need to go. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean we're always able to do that, to drop everything and go meet their needs in the moment. But it is really hard. I'm, I'm finding it, that's actually one of my bigger challenges right now is finding how to influence, ironically, how to influence a whole top leadership team that taking a breath and coming up with a plan, even if it's a three-month plan, I'm not asking them for a three-year plan, but let's at least follow some version of a plan that we can start and, and proceed to fruition to the end in a way that they're actually seeing some benefits, some, some systems, some processes, some training in place. And it's, I'd say it's not, I'm not, I'm certainly not always successful at it. Uh, and I'm not even usually successful at it. So that's something that I'm, I've been really struggling with, particularly in the last couple of years. So that, um, it's interesting because one of the things that I know that you do or that is an interest of yours is pitching or like just kind of pitch and persuasive communication. That sounds to me like a pitch, kind of like a pitch problem to a certain extent, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of getting someone to buy into an idea by the way that you frame it. So if you had to kind of boil down your approach to pitching, um, how do you do it? Because this is a subject that endlessly fascinates me. I read a ton about it. I love pitching things. I love learning new methods, new frameworks. Uh, It's one of my favorite places to be is in front of people pitching a thing and getting that Mm -hmm. buy-in. Like that to me is like, that is, it's like candy. I can't get enough of it. 
So what, what's your kind of, uh, approach to it? Because this sounds like, you know, particularly working with fast moving startups, you have to pitch them on the idea that they have to kind of buy into what you're talking about. So, so how do you go about that stuff? It's such a great question. And I love that you love the pitching. I love the pitch consulting where I'm helping others pitch and the pitching itself. It, it's, you know, whatever shoemakers daughter has no shoes or oh, whatever yeah. the expression is. I can, I can spot a great pitch. I can help a pitch. We can make so much progress together in when I'm working with someone who is pitching investors and that happens a lot. But when it comes to me pitching, I forget it all. I, all of a sudden that's where the imposter syndrome creeps in. I'm like, who am I? I've been lucky enough that I've gotten so much work by referrals that I'm pretty rarely in that opportunity of pitching. Now there's also the pitching within the business. So I have the clients, we've done some great things. Now I need to pitch a, a bigger project or a different project. And in theory, what I would do with my clients is go through a step-by-step -step process where we think about who is, who's being pitched? What do they need? What's important to them? What are their, what are their business factors? What can we do to uh, help their business? So really do a deep dive on the, the audience analysis, then go with like the key messages. What are the top three takeaways that you're going to share that are going to align with their needs, with the, what's important for them right now? Let's go through this and, and talk about it being more, more of a mutually exclusive or really benefiting them versus I am here pitching my wares. Uh, so it's easy enough for me to see that. And especially with the clients I work with so often, they just go so deep and detailed and they just forget to elevate the messages or they forget to think about the audience. So those are pretty easy fixes to see, you know, problems to see and, and, and things to fix. Uh, and yet when it comes to me really being able to pitch their, that they invest their time and they focus on this, it's hard. And I think there's also a piece of it where I see how exhausting it is to be creating a startup, to be working in that environment yeah. where you are just pivoting your strategy and your product, the plan is not working. And, you know, so many things are happening that I think there's a piece of me that sees that environment and thinks, you know, maybe you do need to like double down and focus on your product before you work on your culture. And I, I don't believe that, but I think I, I feel like I'm impeding on their, on their priorities. And so there's a piece of me that feels like if they're ready and they want it, let's go. But I'm not good at influencing them to do it. Um, both because I think I've got this question about uh, what's going on for them. But also I've seen too often where the, they, they will agree to it and then they, it, it, just gets, it just gets derailed by, by other internal things happening and that's frustrating for everybody. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like you can't, you can't know for certain that it's the right thing to do to put this one priority above this other priority and there's only so much time and resources to go around. So you have to allocate those, those assets and resources as best you can. So like coming in and pitching that they do one thing over another and, and like especially if you can empathize and put yourself in their position seeing what they're going through you're like well crap I, I don't know if this is the right move um I'll tell you something that I found very very helpful for me and like, if, if you're if you're interested very that, um I, I've studied a lot of different pitch formats and the one thing that seems to emerge as kind of the the I guess the critical element if you boil it all down to one thing it's change which is that you have to be able to focus on what changes and I think that the success of the pitch often comes down to the urgency of what is changing. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, in, so for instance, I read a book called uh, Pitch Anything by Oren Claff. It's one of my favorites of all mm-hmm. time. But he talks about this concept known as trend casting, where essentially when you pitch, you're kind of pitching in the environment of when this pitch exists, which is right now. Like, what are the different factors that are making now the exact right time, right? So that's one. I, I use this pitch format that I call ABC, Awful Better Connector. And you're showing essentially how we're going from, you take your target customer, what does their awful world look like before what we have to offer? What does their better world look like? And then you kind of tie it together. And I've been doing so many of these different things. And then I studied Donald Miller's uh, story brand format. And so there's all these different storytelling and pitch formats. And I think the thing that I have seen that really just comes out amongst all is that you have to tell the story of how things change and take people from a place where things were more challenging and just worse off and then take them to the better place. And then I think when you get into the how you get there, that's kind of after you've already got them on the hook and they're interested in, I want that change. How does one do such a thing? then you can kind of do it. And I've started to get to the point now where I'm doing it, I, w- I don't want to say unconsciously, but it's starting to get to the point where it's almost like a little bit of a superpower when I'm in these situations with people and they need to take some sort of a, a big action. I'm then helping them to paint the picture in their mind so that they can see that they can't just stay where they are. They can't just keep the things the same and they want to get where they want to go. So then it's about, do I have the right thing to bring them from, from here to there? I love this. It's great. Yeah, it's yeah. great. I love, I love, I love so much about it. I love just, yeah, painting the picture of the problem and the, the you know, what's the ideal state and that change and, and not even starting with the how sort of like, why are we doing this? What, yeah. you know, what, is it, what does it look like? And I love that you have started doing it, that you love doing it and that you're doing this almost unconsciously. That's really cool. Yeah, it's been fun. Uh, it, you know, it, there are some areas where it's a little bit more challenging. Like if I get into any political discussions online, uh, now's not the time for those things. So we won't do that. But uh, yeah, that's where it gets a little bit tricky. But I think that's, um, you know, it's so interesting that all of, the, all of the pieces that you work on, and I would say all of the pieces that I work on, it's this, you can't really bucket and categorize, I think, what you do because it, it's really touching a lot of a, uh, aspects of the business because pitching is marketing, pitching is sales, pitching is leadership. It exists in all three of those. Um, you know, company culture impacts your marketing, your recruiting, your sales, uh, whether or not you can, uh, you know, grow your company based on the operations of the company. There's just so many things there that yeah. you're working with. When you look at the work that you do, two things. One, what is the thing that you just dig the most? Like it's a thing that you're just mm-hmm. so jazzed about doing out of all of these different things. Mm-hmm. What's the thing you're most jazzed about? And then it may or may not be the same answer, but what is the thing that you think is the most impactful in your mission of getting more women into mm-hmm. leadership roles? Yeah, yeah, great questions. Well, I, I have self-diagnosed ADD, so I like to shift things around. And that's part of why I love working on the communication side of leadership, because it touches so much, all those different buckets that you, all the different items that you mentioned. So the thing that I'm loving doing right now is I have been working with groups of women. I've been working with sort of the women's network of different big companies and been coming in to do a, a keynote speech an internal speech to 100 200 whoever however big the the uh, the their their work their organizations are and who attends and doing version of lately it's been focusing on cultivating courage confidence and credibility and again that covers a lot of things I mean so courage is the mindset piece it's it's looking at the inner critic it's it's reframing the story you tell yourself 
the confidence could be in the body language to talk about it from the, the vocal, the visual, the verbal, so all the different areas of ways that people can be really confident from the first time they're meeting someone to when they're leading teams. So all, all kinds of, but it, it applies to sales, it applies to leadership, it applies to people who are just trying to get their job done. And then to the credibility piece, which I define as that influence, that content, being persuasive, all the messaging pieces. So what I love is it's anywhere from a 45 minute to a 90 minute jam-packed session, obviously pared down if it's 45 and a little more extended when it's 90, of covering so many cool topics that then we follow up with little training sessions or not little training sessions, but training sessions with smaller groups of people and just reinforce. So I love it when I can have like a big hit with a whole group and then reinforce over time with smaller groups so that it feels like they have that support of each other. They have the framework and tools, they have the practice, and that feels like it's the most impactful way to be inspiring and working well with women within a certain, a single organization. So that piece of it is what I'm hoping to cultivate more of and have been really loving. A different thing that I like a lot, uh, which is actually almost rarely women, is working with some of these startups in their new people manager programs and focusing on the interpersonal communication skill side of the business. So it's typically engineers, product people, very analytical people, focusing on how do I give feedback? How do I relate to people on my team? How do I coach them? How do I motivate them? How do I hold them accountable? How do I use question, questions and listening to really be impactful? Because they're pretty good at the process side of things and the analytical side of things, but really, really bad at the inter interpersonal side of things. So that feels like, I think anything I do where I can see an impact is very rewarding. Okay. Well, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. You froze for a second. Got it. So that's an, that's a good answer to it. Um, those are all things that I think are obviously super duper important. Um, so with, with regard to specifically the work of um, moving women into leadership roles, um, that being a focus means that there is obviously a, an attention to that particular cohort of people. And I think the fact that you're doing that, you're in a unique position to be able to kind of educate the audience that may not understand why there even needs to be something that's focused on bringing women to not just, you know, forget about the numbers for a second, but like, why does, why can't they just take the same kind of leadership and approach that everybody else does? So can you talk a little bit about the unique issues and challenges that you think some of these women managers face as they're trying to kind of scale and go through and up the corporate ladder? What are some of the kind of skills gaps there might be? What are some of the kind of cultural um, challenges they might face? Um, and, and specifically, if there's anything that um, when, when you kind of get into the conversation around intersectionality and, you know, once you start layering on top, not just, you know, female, but also female people of color or female right. people of color and LGBTQ or uh, transgender women, things like that. Um, what is unique to what you're doing that it wouldn't just kind of map onto just your general everyday kind of leadership training and coaching? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the things that I find so interesting is that 
girls starting from a very young age. So dad, pay attention for your new daughter coming uh, are conditioned to be good students. So there's this societal expectation, often a family or parent parental expectation of you're going to do well in school. And there's less of that expectation by teachers, by culture uh, of the boys. So there's all kinds of studies that that look into this, that girls get rewarded, praised, feel validated when they do really well in school. And that's great. It helps them get into great colleges and, and graduate programs and things of that nature. But those skills are not always transferable in the workplace. And so the same things that they've done to be successful in the first 20 years of their life or so are what they want to do when they're getting the business. And there's this problem of over-preparing, over-studying, only applying for the job when I meet every criteria and then some, only feeling like I can share my voice or uh, present my, my recommendation when it's fully vetted. So there is something unique about the way that, that girls have been conditioned and, and have been raised and what they value that doesn't translate perfectly to how to be a leader. So it's, it's a little less, uh, a little more risk avoidant. Uh, and, and then, yeah, you take on the, the, the other cultural factors too. Again, I mean, that's true of, of male and females from different, uh, from African-American communities, black communities, things of that nature, where the risk is, is very much heightened, far more than for, for a white or Caucasian girl. So yeah, I mean, that's even magnified. But the idea is to really understand what is it you can do and why is it important? So painting that change like you talked about of like, here's where we are now. Here's where you want to be in this organization, the impact you have, the role you could have to get from here to there. It's not by doing all the best preparation. Sure, that, that's useful, but it's also about sharing your idea, even if it's going to be shot down. Maybe it's building a thicker skin. Maybe it's being okay with saying the idea and the recommendation and it might stick, it might not stick. So there's a piece of that that is really hard to decondition, but really important to look at. What does it mean to speak up? What does it mean to be visible? What does it mean to ask for just more opportunities? And how do I do that? How do I get that courage to do that? That is different than traditional leadership training. I love it. And as I love that you kind of started it off a little bit like pay attention, new dad, because um, so my wife, uh, my wife is Chinese and she was brought up. Her parents are first generation. Like they just, they came over from China. Um, and being the, the daughter of immigrant parents, there's a, a certain kind of work ethic and way that like her her way that she was in school, both being child of immigrants and then also female, she was very like great student, you know, always A's, like got upset if she got like a 95. So like when we are talking about our daughter that's on the way, she's very much like, she knows that she's going to be the one that's going to be pushing, like do well in school, all this. And like, all I can think about is like, I just want her to break the rules. Like I just want her to like go in there and raise hell because I think the people that in general, shake things up are the ones that really facilitate the kind of change for progress. So, uh, so I'm already prepared for her to be just like a little hell raiser and mm-hmm. parent teacher conferences and things. Um, but you, I think you raise a really interesting point about 
the discomfort about doing a lot of these things due to kind of the, the upbringing through, you know, kind of the, the, I just watched the Taylor Swift documentary and it kind of opens up with her talking about, she always wanted to be like a good girl, you know, like, yeah. uh, and do the right thing and like all, all that sort of stuff. And, and I can see, I can't imagine what that would be like to have that kind of pressure because again, only child. And I was brought up like right. I could do anything I want. So, but there's a lot of pressure there, I'd imagine, to kind of break that mold to one, break all the different things that you were conditioned for. And then also the fear of, of kind of being in that situation where there's all this pressure of like, what if this backfires? I'm going against what, what my gut instinct would tell me to do, all this sort of stuff. And I know one of the things that you work with people on is how to perform under pressure. Yeah. So whether that's in a pitch or whether that's speaking up in a meeting or that's having an uncomfortable conversation, there are things that people need to do to be able to perform under pressure. I'm curious what your approach to it is um, because I have, I have a unique thing that I do and I'm yeah. curious what your take is on, but I want to hear what your, yeah. what your approach generally is to working with people who have to perform under pressure. Yeah. I can't wait to hear your approach. Uh, so what I do is, is work with them on a few things. First of all, I find that so many people are in their heads and just spending too much time in their heads. So really focus on externalizing the situation. So think about what this means to those around you. So for example, if I'm dealing with a CEO who's brilliant, but a terrible speaker, and he needs to present at his, at his sales kickoff or all hands or even an industry event, talk about what is it that you're going to say that's going to benefit or impact each of those people in the seats. And really, that's our focus. Let's get out of your head, get out of your concerns, get out of wordsmithing and, and behavioral change and on stage and focus on what impact are you going to make for that person there and for that person there. So that's one thing. Frame shifting again, uh, changing exactly. what they're doing so that yeah. it no longer, it's interesting. My technique is going to be very similar. It's yeah. different, but it's similar. So I like that you're going there. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's in, in just variations of that, really, you know, we'll, we'll talk about putting this in perspective, you know, especially when you get the people who are just freaking out and putting in the perspective, talking about what can happen, you know, we often go with like, what might happen, the fears, like, what are the opportunities that could unfold if you do this well? So yeah. let's, you know, paint that picture of what, what does it look like to really succeed? Let's, you know, I live, I live in California, so excuse my West Coast, but let's visualize success. Um, and, but truly thinking about like what could unfold, let's really make this, let's put it out there. Let's, let's both put it out there in a whatever woo way, but also let's actually plan for that. Let's think about what are you going to say that's going to change this and how are you going to do it? Um, so, so really painting the possibility talking about the frame shifting, making sure it's contextualized. Those are the main, main things I work with. Now, I'm dying to hear yours. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm, so one, I just want to just put out there, before I tell yours, what, we're, what my approach is, is almost the exact opposite, but exact same as what you're doing. So I'm really happy you shared yours because it's, it's, um, it's a new way for me to incorporate something new into the way that I do it. So, so here's how I'll define the difference between our approaches on this. And why I think if we combined our superpowers, Captain Planet, like we are unstoppable. So I would define that what you're doing is you're changing the frame of what people see. Mm -hmm. right? So you're painting a different picture of what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. The approach that I take is I change who is seeing it. So what I do is I employ something that, and there's a book written by this name, and I think it has similar concepts. Um, I think it was, is the book was called Alter Ego. It's by T Todd... Um, 
think uh, Todd Herman, I think. Okay. Anyway, uh, he wrote a book called Alter Ego, but I've been doing this for years and, and I'll actually share with you my, my uh, interesting way that I stumbled upon this technique. But what I do is instead of changing what they see, mm-hmm. I change who's seeing it. So I change how they're perceiving themselves in the moment of whatever that pressure situation is. So for instance, let's say that you get nervous public speaking. I would ask you, well, who do you know that's an amazing public speaker? And then I would ask them about that. And they would say, well, define, how do you think that they feel when they're up there? What do you think that they think about? Um, what do you think are some of the things that they um, you know, uh, experience when they're looking at somebody in the crowd or when they're about to deliver one of their ideas? So I would get them to paint a really vivid picture of the person that they, that they would ideally want to be in that position. And then I asked them to give that person a name like a moniker, a superhero name, if you will. Right. When they step into that situation, they essentially very much like an actor playing a part mm-hmm. embody those characteristics. Now, are those characters, in general, the idea is not to invent something that is not you, right? Like right. they would right. do a backflip. Well, can you do a backflip? It's not like that. <laughs> right. Like, could you be confident? What do you, what do you feel like when you're at your best? Can you ever experience these same sort of things? And then essentially what you're essentially doing is removing all of the other stuff. You're saying, mm-hmm. when I'm in this situation, I'm going to embody this particular alter ego, and I am mm-hmm. going to step up and be this person in that situation. So it, if we combine our two approaches, yes. change the way that they see uh, themselves in those mm-hmm. moments, and then we change how they see the outcome that is possible from them going up there in that moment. We've essentially changed how they're approaching it and how they perceive the possible outcome of that. Yes. I love it. I love it. I play around that, that, but not to the extent that you're talking about, like all of that, how are they feeling? You know, we'll we'll do something simple, like, okay, who do you think is a great speaker? Now go channel your inner Brad Pitt up there. Yeah. But to really go through it in the depth that you talked about is really powerful. So can I tell you how I stumbled upon this? I don't don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before. I may have. So listeners, if I have, forgive me, but I haven't told you about it. So uh, in 2013, um, I got divorced. I moved out of the house that I was living in with my ex-wife and I was back on the dating scene and I hadn't been single since 2004 and I had absolutely no idea what to do. And my entire life, ever since I was like, maybe 14 and started liking girls, I was always very nervous around one type of girl, only one. Every other girl, I was very calm, cool, collected. I could always talk. I was my same self where like I could be charming and I could be funny and I was relaxed. But if you put me in front of a short brunette, short, pretty brunette, I would just gibble, garble, garble, not be able to talk. I was just an absolute idiot. Like I was not in any way, the best version of myself. I was literally every worst version of myself. I would say dumb things, put my foot in my mouth, pretend that I wasn't nervous when I was stupid nervous. So what I did was is that uh, as I started getting back out on the dating scene and meeting people and everything, I realized I had to come up with a better way of dealing with this. I essentially thought to myself, well, okay, who am I when I'm at my best? Like when I'm on a date with somebody who I'm not nervous around and when I'm my charming self and all these different things and, you know, how do I feel? What are the sort of things that I think they perceive me as, where some of the ways that I want to be perceived as all of the different things I started, I invented essentially this picture of the person I was in that setting. And I said, that's who I'm going to be. And I named that person. I can't reveal that on air, but mm-hmm. I named that person because that's the secret to the vest. Uh, mm-hmm. But I named that person. And then when I would go out with, if I got a date with a short brunette, uh, I would, I would become that person and it would help me to calm my nerves. Now, it worked like a charm. My wife is uh, short, <laughs> brunette, 
Chinese, beautiful, uh, and a total Disney princess, and she's the love of my life. So it clearly worked, yeah. uh, but the, the technique was so useful because it was almost instantaneous, and I've now used it in a number of different settings. And I think what triggered it for me, and I, I know we're both speakers, um, the first time I ever gave a talk, first talk I ever gave was in front of 150 people. So prior to that experience, and I got flown out to Los, uh, Los Angeles for it, and I called up uh, another speaker I know named Jason Falls, and I was like, Jason, I'm, I'm giving a talk. It's an hour and a half long. I have no idea what to do. I'm terrified. And he was like, bro, just break it up into three pieces, three 30-minute segments. Like, you'll be fine. You know your stuff. I was like, okay, cool. So I got out there, and I'm like, butterflies. I'm sweating. And I'm like, oh, I've drank too much coffee. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally bomb this. And I set foot on the. They called my name. I set foot on stage. As soon as my foot hit the stage, I felt complete calm. I like every, like a, a wash of relaxation came over me. Love and it that. was like, I felt like I was home. I was like, you mean to tell me that 150 people are going to just listen to me for an hour and a half and give me their undivided attention. And all I have to do is talk about a thing that I've been studying incessantly. Right. Okay. And so, so what happened was, is that when I, I kind of had this moment where I was like, okay, well, I can, you can manifest different feelings, right? Wow. Like you, excitement and nerves or are, are anxiety are basically mm -hmm. the same physical reaction in your body. So it's mm -hmm. about how you relate to it. So essentially, by doing the alter ego technique, it's this idea of like, how can you manifest these different ideas, thoughts, feelings, experiences, and then just name them in a positive association and then be able to use them. So I love that. That is so cool. I mean, it, you know, even when you say it, thinking about the power of the mind and how you can control it, like right now, we think about lemons. We're going to pucker. Like you just yeah. do. It's just so amazing how you can create these images in your brain and have a physiological reaction to them. I think yeah. that's so cool and so fascinating. I love, I love that. Story. I love that you walk on stage and all of a sudden felt this sense of calm. It was unbelievable. I'll never forget it. Honestly, I, it's like uh, I went skydiving once and I'll never forget the first two seconds when you fall out of the plane because it's like this weird weightlessness and I'll never forget it. I will never forget the feeling of like literally like my heel hitting the stage. And as soon as the foot went flat, it was just everything went quiet. It was amazing. Uh, um, so the other thing I want to tell you about, and this is a secondary yeah. that's kind of related is, uh, have you ever experimented with your clients using the power of negative thinking? Tell me more. I've done something, but I'm curious yeah. where, you're, where you're going. So I heard about it from, I believe I heard about it from Tim Ferriss. He was talking about how essentially he'll do this exercise where essentially he plays out the absolute worst, worst. case scenario, like goes through the entire thing and then thinks, and then, well, what? And, then well, what? and then what, and then what, and he gets to like the absolute worst. And he's like, well, what would I do? And he, he has this kind of epiphany of like, well, I guess I would just handle it. Right. So yeah. like you kind of try on the worst possible thing that can happen yes. and it, it kind of sets you up so that you're prepared for it, even if it does happen. And it's unlikely to happen anyway. You realize that you're kind of making up this story in your head, the, right. the worry instead of experience what actually is. But you've already gone through all of that suffering by putting yourself through that thinking process. So when you get there, you're free to just experience it and be in that moment. I've tried it a few times. I don't have a lot of scenarios in my life that I'm like, you know, absolutely terrified about or anything like mm -hmm. that. But there are times where, you know, I'll worry like, you know, normal business up and downs. So and I'm like, okay, well, I'm totally going to be homeless and my wife's going to leave me and everything's terrible. Right. And I'll go through all that. And I'm like, okay, all of that's unlikely. It's not going to happen. And I'll right. have a place to sleep. So it's a great exercise for those 2am worries when uh, all of a sudden things feel out of control and you're like, okay, and then what? And then yeah. what? And I'm yeah. on, you know, in a box in the corner of the street and it's terrible. Yeah, I combine that with mind mapping. So I just get it all out and I just let it all kind of flow. And then I look at it and I'm like, that's absurd. Throw yeah. it out, 
but it's out of the head now, right? So it's much exactly. better. Exactly. You've explored it. You've taken it to the end. Yeah. Um, a lot of the work that you do looks to me like it would be stuff that you could do your practice without anything but maybe like a Word doc and Excel, an Excel mm-hmm. spreadsheet and a Zoom connection, right? Like the, <laughs> it's all about the ideas, how you implement them. It, it's not very, uh, it doesn't seem like it would be very technically heavy in terms of how, because it's all about people and communications right. and connections and leadership. Um, is, that, is that an accurate way of portraying it? Very accurate. Yes. In fact, it's funny. I know technology is a, a big passion of yours. It is. I was thinking about, you know, where do I lie on the spectrum of technology? Very, very prone to efficiency. Like that's just when you talk about those communication styles or identifying our motivators. Yep. Efficiency is big for me. Patience, low. So yes, I want any technology that will help to sync my calendar with my this, with my invoicing, with whatever else, but someone better figure that out because I am not going to spend the time to figure out how to sync it all. Uh, but you're right. I can, I can just, I mean, I can truly walk around with my, my phone and get a whole lot done and it's the good and the bad news. I mean, it's certainly hard to scale and go on vacation and do the rest of things when you own your own business. And it's reliant on you being there with clients, yeah. but I love Zoom. I love all the virtual opportunities so much better than the old days of Skype and or where you had to drive to clients. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a very low overhead. So you have self-diagnosed ADD. I have officially <laughs> diagnosed ADHD. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious if you're like me in the sense that, so I am, uh, I'm obscenely organized in my life. Um, I have my moments where I'm not, but it's not a natural thing. I have, mm-hmm. I have rigorously trained myself to use my systems. I use my calendar. I use my email. I am super crazy about my task management. Um, I'm constantly doing priority management to make sure that I know what are the most important things. My notes are diligently tagged and organized. Uh, I have separate places for my journal that, it, you know, mm-hmm. so like everything is very rigid. And if you look at my closet, it's also generally extremely well organized, except when everything is in a laundry basket and I'm living out of it. Right. Um, I'm curious if you're similar in the sense that you impose rigid structures on yourself to kind of keep that stuff in check, or if you found a way to manage kind of being a little bit more free flowing about how you do stuff. Cause my approach has been just crush it, just, just crush my ADD into a box yeah. and keep it organized and in line. Yeah, it's interesting. I live in a household uh, where we have to have lots of structure around because there are diagnoses in my household that require good levels of organization to happen. And I have been lucky enough to get away with just being sort of naturally prone to efficiency and organization, but still kind of messy too. So I do have my, you know, my files in my Dropbox. I've got the Evernote. I've got the, I, I have the, the, allure or the interest in looking at my calendar at the end of the day and being like, okay, this is what happened. This is what needs to happen tomorrow and that type type of thing. But the systems are not there day in, day out. Okay. I'd love them to be. Okay. But, uh, We're going to talk after this. I'm going to show you all yeah. the systems. Uh, I, I can't wait to see. Yeah. Yeah. I, Cause it's, it's just been a labor of, I want to call it a labor of love because like, I don't know if I love it or not. Like it jazzes me up to have something ordered and I feel the sense of calm once everything's in its place, but yeah. it's extremely anxious feeling sometimes, but it, it's, it, it's because I know that the alternative is yes. feeling complete chaos. Yes. Um, so, so how do you, how do you manage your, your keeping your clients on 
because so again this could be one of those like cobbler's children have cobbler's children have no shoes sort of situation where like maybe you kind of like figure you kind of do the best you can with your clients you're super efficient and rigid how do you make sure to keep them on top of i don't want to say deliverables because it's less deliverables Mm -hmm. and it's more like doing the emotional work how do you keep them on track and organized around the different kind of things that you're working on with them yeah yeah so i am a big believer in identifying the top priorities and really throwing away everything else so focusing on just a couple things and the analogy i always use is is my husband is a golfer and when we were dating he brought me to the golf range and got me a lesson that was so nice and it effing sucked I mean, the, the instructor was like, okay, so bend your knees, bend at the waist, look at the ball, arms straight, arms bent. I mean, you know, 55 instructions. And of course, I felt like I had done a decent job of hitting the ball off the range when I had had no instruction. And now all these instructions are in my brain. So it's like, okay, focus on two things. That's all you can do. So I'm pretty good at, I'm very good at identifying what those two things are, working with the clients that they have to have buy-in, and then just having check-ins. So every client is different. The cadence is completely different. But if I have, let's say, a meeting with someone every other week, then I touch base with them in the interim week and just check in on that, their homework, their specifics. And so I have a flagging system just through my, my calendar, but nothing overly sophisticated. Okay. Okay. I love your smile. I feel like you're going to introduce me to a new oh, I way. Wait. I, there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So many of my other guests I've turned on to some of my systems and like I I, 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 on a very regular basis speak with some of my other guests about like how to improve and update their systems and stuff. I'm just like yeah. a systems junkie at this point. I can't wait to show you about them. We'll do those offline. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, I have to say like the, the invoicing stuff, that, that is not my strength at all. Yeah. And I have an amazing bookkeeper and an amazing virtual assistant. So they do all that stuff that yeah. I don't want to do, but the, the client interfacing stuff, I, uh, yeah. I'm I'm prone. I need some new suggestions. You're like people, just get me with the people. I'll be fine. All of that exactly. other stuff. If y'all could just handle that, that would be exactly. Great. No, I feel you. I'm I'm very similar. I'm just constantly forcing myself out of the comfort zone, and I will show you some of my systems, and you, I think, will love them. Um, sure. So I, I think where I want to kind of like wrap us um, right. in the conversation is um, I want to make sure that we've we've kind of given the audience that's listening to this, some very kind of clear takeaways as it relates to if you're, if you're one of my women listeners, mm. uh, kind of like what are some things that they could immediately start working on, thinking about, uh, yeah. learning about, really putting themselves through the process of readying themselves to step into that leadership role where, uh, you know, in the absence of like direct con- consulting with you, what are some kind of like starting yeah. points for them? And then I think equally as important and um, I maybe selfishly, I think some some of similar advice, but for the men who are working with women, who can open up leadership opportunities, mm. who are mentoring women that want to move into mm-hmm. leadership opportunities, or even just women that are on their team that they want to see succeed and flourish and thrive. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the things that either of those two types of listeners can take away from this episode and kind of move forward tomorrow and start doing something really impactful to, to start shifting the culture of work? Great. Okay. Uh, two very different answers to that, but two very important questions. So the first is for those who are listening who are like, okay, I want to up my leadership game. I want to, to really work on this. And I mentioned that I was work, I've been doing this, this talk on courage, credibility, and confidence. And what I find so fascinating 
is I'll often pull the audience either through Mentimeter or by hands. And when I ask them what they are, what brought them there today, very few will raise their hands and say it was courage. You know, they really want to learn more about credibility, maybe confidence. Almost none of them say courage. Then at the end, they'll come up to me or whether it's face to face or sometimes they'll link in with me and be like, you know, I loved it. And I really loved the courage part. And I was, I was too afraid to say that that's really what I wanted. Uh, the irony of it. It's so true. And so it, 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 this happened a few times before I realized, okay, this is universal. This is something that's happening. And to your point earlier about shame, I don't want to raise my hand in front of my colleagues, in front of people who, who would judge me and admit I want to cultivate more courage. So for anyone, no matter where they are in their leadership experience, I really recommend going to Byron Katie's The Work and working through a turnaround story. Do you know this, Jeff? Do you know anything? I, Have you heard? I don't. I'm writing it down to make sure that I go check it. I mean, I'll get the link yeah. and everything, and I'll put it in the show notes as well. Uh, yeah. For anybody that's listening, you can just click on it. Um, Byron Katie's, say that again? Yes. It's a woman named Byron Katie. It's a very odd name. Mm -hmm. And she has this website called The Work. And what she specifically, what I love is the turnaround stories. So it's taking any limiting belief that you might be telling yourself like, oh, I'm not experienced enough or I need more years or I, no one wants to hear from me or whatever it is that you're telling yourself that's a limiting belief. And you turn around to its exact opposite. Well, first of all, you, you question whether it's actually true and accurate. Then you turn it around to its exact opposite and you come up with steps for really cultivating like what would your life be like with this new turnaround story? And it's powerful. It's good journaling. It's a great, it's a great yeah. exercise with, with um, really thought-provoking prompts. So that is an easy and yet deeply profound way to start the journey. I absolutely love that. And uh, I just want to add really quickly that uh, in the superhero code of ethics from the superhero, the superhuman framework um, for my company, the Superhero Institute, uh, two things that nicely go with that is that uh, of the 10 elements on the code of ethics, there's bravery, and then there's confidence. And I think mm -hmm. bravery and confidence is courage, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm in complete alignment with that. I think being able to have the courage to stand up for what's right, and to stand mm -hmm. up for yourself and to have the confidence to say that it's okay for me to do this, no one can tell me no, uh, yeah. is something that I think you really need to be able to go forth and make the impact on the world. So I am in 100% alignment with that. Please, listeners, ladies, men, whoever, mm -hmm. please be courageous. So yeah, yeah, on that, okay, so for the men or for the this yeah. group that is. Yeah. Yeah, the other group around cultivating, one of the things that makes me sad is, you know, the pendulum swings so often on, on different topics and, and Me Too has created all kinds of good and bad. And the the report that men no longer feel comfortable going out with women you know, for one-on-one, -on -one, you know, off, off, off campus, off site to, you know, have dinner or something because how it will be perceived. And I would really say to invest some version of time. It, it might feel like, okay, I'm running around like crazy. I don't have the time to do this, but invest time, whether it be in holding one-on-ones with your women as often as you do with men and creating those type of opportunities. But also one of the things that I find so amazing is when the men leaders of organizations show up for the women events. So I'm speaking at a lot of these events at different corporations. And when we get male leader sponsors in there, 
who really want to learn and really want to support the room, it speaks volumes about that particular leader and the company in general. So those types of things, I don't feel like it, this is a, an exclusive club that women have and they need to have it separate from the rest of the organization, but actually to be present and be supportive of those type of things in their time and in their voices is, is really, um, really valuable. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And one thing that I would add that I try to keep in mind is that it, there's a very uh, sometimes difficult distinction to make between being parental and being supportive. Right. Uh, and I think a, a lot of and this is partly, I think, kind of cultural. I think men tend to, you know, fall into leadership roles. Culturally, it's more accepted and kind of there's an easier path for it. But sometimes that takes the role of like, you know, you're kind of like parenting and, and mm-hmm. there's like, there's a power dynamic there that is, I think, not necessarily, um, it's not necessary really. Whereas you can go and be supportive and, and have the humility and kind of put your pride to the side enough to actually learn from the person that maybe you're mentoring and give them the opportunity to grow and thrive. Because I, I always think to myself about leadership is that it's not your job as a leader to grow the people beneath you and continually maintain your status as being above them. Your job as a leader is to grow everyone yes. to maximum extent, even if that means that they surpass you. Um, yeah. And I, I've got some people that I have uh, had on my team that I've coached, uh, and and I think that they've even exceeded where I am in my career at a younger age. And I, I, right. you know, obviously I, you have the natural reaction. You're like, damn it, and you yeah. have your own sort of thing. But like, I, I am proud of them. I'm excited yeah. for what they've done, and I don't take credit for what they've been able to do. I'm just happy to have been a part of that process. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's a really tough line because it, you know, your ego's involved with it. You wanna, yeah. you wanna be able to take credit and say like you know, that's my girl up there, right? Like, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like, how does that, how does that impact her? How does that help her to flourish mm-hmm. and grow and really reflect uh, on you the best possible way? Best possible way is if she's able to go up there on her own, flourish mm-hmm. in her own right, and then be able to say, you know, and I really appreciate earlier parts of my career where this person was able to support me and mentor me. It meant a lot. Totally. And I think one of the ways to get the ego out of the way is to look at it or to have the frame of, I can learn from everybody. Yeah. I can learn something new from them, either by observing them or listening to them. And when we go into that mindset, it's, it, it quenches a little, or the, it quells the, um, that ego, that, that emotional reaction that we have. So to have that piece of what can I learn from this experience or what can I learn from this person? And that's the idea too, because I, I do want to make that distinction of for the male leaders and organizations, don't show up at these meetings and be all parental about it or, yeah. or, or take it, you trick credit. This is my organization and we have this fabulous women's group, but actually go in to learn, go to support, go to learn. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Well, hope this has been as every bit as amazing as I knew that it was going to be, but it's been really great to talk to you. Um, now's the time of the show. I like to just turn it over to my guest and let you talk about anything that you're working on, let people know where they can be social with you, where they can learn more about you, where they can read all of your fabulous work. Um, anything now the show is yours at this point. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, pretty simple. Everything is hope Timberlake, whether it's on LinkedIn or hope Timberlake.com will bring you to my website. I, I am on Facebook and LinkedIn, not so much Twitter, a little bit, but uh, more of a, of a stalker than a participant. And working on a book, so right now it's called Speak Up, Damn It, and it's intended to get more women leaders to speak up in the workplace. Uh, still on draft one, but be, be on the lookout for that eventually. 
and just more than anything, it's super fun to talk to you, Jeff. Love this conversation. Love, love uh, this time together. Yeah, it was a blast for sure. We're going to have to hold each other accountable. I'm 48,000 words into mine. And um, I was uh, speaking with Melanie Diesel uh, in the last mm. episode. And she was like, you need to get this done before this baby comes. And I was like, uh, she was like, set a deadline. You can do it. So I think as you're writing one right now and I'm writing one, I think we should probably have like become accountability buddies. Totally. I yeah. love that. Well, yes. I'm so glad that you're writing a book too, because I, I actually had on my mental list of things to ask you to say, like with all the things that you're doing, like how, how is it that I do not have a, a copy of a book from you yet? Um, so it's, I'm glad that you're doing it. I'm happy yes. that uh, the time has come for it. So uh, for all of you out there listening, thank you for spending the time with us. Uh, honestly, I would keep doing these kind of conversations, whether or not anybody listens to this at all. So it's really <laughs> nice that you do listen, uh, listeners of Shareable, but um, you know, it's always a blast to, to get to set aside an hour or so to talk with somebody that's really freaking smart and that's really interesting. And it was a great conversation. Um, so I guess if, would you describe this episode as anything, any one thing in particular, how would you describe it? I think I'd describe it as shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay. If you enjoy shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing, shareable.fm, where this podcast is hosted. Do you have a podcast or know someone that has a podcast that you think is particularly, I don't know, shareable? Well, send them to shareable.fm to apply to be on the network. Shows that are selected not only get added to the site and in some cases to the Shareable FM radio podcast, but we also bring together the best tips, tricks, and tactics for promoting your show and growing listenership. And for our headliner and feature shows, we provide fully outsourced social advertising support. So leave the uh, promotion to us, okay? So give it a look, and if you want to find some new and interesting shows, or if you just want additional exposure for your own show or know someone who would benefit, please let them know about it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Shareable. I sincerely appreciate it, and this show would mean absolutely nothing without you, the listener. So thank you, and I hope to see you back for the next one. Goodbye for now. <laughs>